Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Politics could get more intense here with an open campaign for governor, but at least maybe there won't be a pandemic in the political mix. We'll get into that. We'll catch you up on the week's news this hour with a panel of local journalists, including Seattle Times reporter Amanda Zoe. Welcome back, Amanda. Hi, Bill. It's good to be here. Political analyst and contributing columnist. Welcome back, Joni Bolter. Hey there. KUOW. Nice to see you too, Joni. KOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. Welcome back. Thanks, Bill. And you can stream this show on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio and you can watch us as well as hear us. So I got a text this morning from my friend Jill. Quote, I'm on a walk this morning and it is the most beautiful day. This is what we struggle all winter for. But all I'm hearing from media is doom and gloom and stoking anxiety about it. I can see that when we have smoky summers, but can't we just enjoy one nice weekend? What I'd like to add to that is I think May is the most beautiful month everywhere. So if your city doesn't look good in May, (laughs) it's not it's not going to happen for you. This is the you know, the the lawns are the greenest. The flowers are the most abundant. Uh, May is May is a fabulous month, especially in Seattle. But I'm talking about 80, 80 degrees today on Friday, at least 80s this weekend into early next week. And so you're going to melt. I'm fine. I'm just, uh, you know, I don't. And I actually texted back. I said, when you say doom and gloom, is it because people are saying they're talking about climate change or people are saying don't jump in the icy water? And uh, she didn't text back, I assume, because she's too busy taking a walk (laughs) in the sunshine. Well, I can be the the mean media to okay. rain on everybody's parade, <laughs> but you know, extreme oh, rain? heat. <laughs> well, I guess to to not rain on everybody's parade. But right. Extreme heat is dangerous. It's actually, I think, it is one of, if not the most dangerous weather phenomenon that we have. And I think that that's what this really goes to. I mean, most of us, myself included, hopefully, will get outside. You know, we've been so cold. We had such a freezing April. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's our responsibility as, you know, the wet blanket reporters that we are to Mm. give people the information they need if they happen to be more vulnerable, whether you're, you know, elderly or you have a health condition. I personally was eight months pregnant during the record heat wave of 2021, so I'm a little bit scarred. (laughs) But I am looking forward to the good weather this weekend. Yeah, I'm sort of wondering how your friend's going to feel on Sunday when it's going to be 80 you know right now it's pretty nice i'm excited to wear my shorts but i don't know how i'm going to feel when it's like toasty outside yeah well and 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 everybody's vulnerability point and discomfort point is different obviously but it is i i would agree with her that if you're going to have an unusually hot day you want it to be in may because unusually hot means that what 88 not 102 so there's that that but is a big difference. But 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 are we saying we it's a good idea to go to the Green River without a life vest and without checking the temperature, just cannonball in? Is that <laughs> or is that a bad thing? That, that's the that's the story that I hear over and over every year. Don't jump in the icy water, so don't do it. Well, I think the don't jump in the water is the best advice. You know, the reason you keep hearing it so much is because it's really good advice. I mean, it, it's really cold. As you said, April, the whole 
winter and the early part of spring was really cold. So the waterways did not have much time if they're going to warm up to do that. And then if you want to talk heat dome, which I feel so badly for you going through that, it was a really tough time since, you know, most people do not have air conditioning in Seattle, although that's changing a little bit. But the heat dome in, in Washington, just to turn this beautiful weather story into kind of one of, of tragedy at that time, 159 Washingtonians died from the heat that year. And there were more more people who really suffered and then and actually uh, died in Oregon and, and uh, lower British Columbia. It's yeah. not something to... But again, I just don't want to conflate this. That's not what's happening this weekend right. and Monday. So and ho- hopefully never again. Yes, 89 is very different than 102. Yeah. How how did you cool off? I just stayed in I basically hugged the one window AC unit that we yeah. had. That was my best friend all weekend. I watched like several shows on my laptop, but You were telling me about a swamp cooler. A swamp cooler. Yeah, so if you don't have AC, you can make what's called a swamp cooler, which basically uses humidity to cool down a room. I think. Um, I haven't built one myself, but a few years ago when I went to Burning Man, I had some friends who <laughs> built them. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they're pretty cool, unless you put your hand in one, which one of them did, and she had to get a number of stitches. <laughs> what, what, what? Wait, I'm sorry. What is, what is a swamp cooler? Sorry. Okay. So it's like a Home Depot bucket. Picture a Home Depot bucket okay. full of cold water. And you modify a fan to sit on top of it and oh, kind yeah. of suck that cold water out and spray it into the space that you're in. Some of them use this filter that's wet and it just yeah. draws cold air through it and yeah, cool evaporates. Yeah, I think there's off. different ways to make them, yeah. um, but they just you know it's a DIY project, so mm-hmm. exercise caution. Well, she put her hand in, and what happened? It it sliced up her finger. Oh, the she fan. put her oh hand. Wait a minute. To be clear, she put her hand in the, the fan, fan, the but bucket. Had less, <laughs> oh, which which is now being cool. But she sticks her hand in there, and there's there goes the fingers. Right. Okay. She still has fingers. She's okay. 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 <laughs> okay. Be careful out there. All right. Should we talk about other news? Yeah. Okay. So our choice for governor is uh, been taking shape this week. You know, Governor Inslee's not running. Attorney General Bob Ferguson is. And this week, State Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz said she is in. Joni, what are the important differences between Franz and Ferguson? <laughs> well, we shall spend some of the next 18 months trying to figure that out. Uh, so far, just by um, the way that that many people know these folks or just their um, – inaugural videos announcing that they are here and they're going to run, it's emphasis, as one of my uh, former Seattle Times editors used to say to Uh me. What are they focusing on? What are they emphasizing? And so let me just outline, I think, three big issues coming up for this governor's race that's going to go on for a long time. Climate change, gun safety, abortion rights. Hillary France, in her introductory, uh, introductory video, and these things go on for some time, talks a lot about climate change. And she just visually plays up her connections with uh, Eastern Washington, which she has. These are legitimate. Uh, But she doesn't talk in her video at all about gun safety or abortion rights, which in Bob Ferguson's uh, video, he talks a lot about those. And he has some shall we say, street cred or bragging rights yeah, in those he's areas. he's brought lawsuits along those lines. Well, lawsuits and also he, and was, a, he was a champion of the um, assault weapons ban yes. that has been lingering for years in the legislature and then finally passed this year and some other uh, gun legislation. 
Uh, you, you get a feeling sometimes from Bob Ferguson that he's been preparing for this job since right after he was born. Um, but, you know, look, this is going to go on for some period of time. I think we cannot uh, also rule out a Republican. The last Republican elected to the, to be governor of Washington State was a former King County executive named John Spellman. John Spellman. Elected in 1980, left office in 19, you know, the beginning of 1985. But one of the things that got me thinking about this race this week had to do with uh, a Republican name going around, former U.S. Um, Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler from Southwest Washington. Mm-hmm. Now, I found this, this very interesting because you could call her – she's a Republican – but you could also call her an independent with a lowercase i, an independent in the sense that she lost her seat because she voted to impeach Donald Trump. And she showed other streaks of independence, Very, you know, even in 2016 after the Access Hollywood tape came out. She made it very public. She did not vote for Donald Trump. She wrote in Paul Ryan. Mm, that's right. Okay. So, and by the way, our political reporter, David Hyde, asked – Jamie Herrera Butler, are you running? And she told him she's too busy gardening to decide. Right now, I just put in my raspberry bushes, and I need to make sure that they go up before I turn my attention to uh, (laughs) what I'm doing next. A new raspberry bush is not going to fruit until at least late summer, early autumn. So That that was not a denial in in my country that I'm living in. Uh, There's another Republican name. He was around last time, Dr. Um, Raul Garcia. Uh, Yakima emergency room doctor who runs a, a, as a moderate on some of these issues. And so, you know, we got a lot of time here, folks. We got to, you know, buckle up and, and, and try to sustain our interest yeah, for well, as long as it's going to go. What did you say, 18 months? Well, till the election day. Yeah, as soon as you said that, I just felt so tired already. <laughs> <laughs> My eyes are glazing over. Mm, okay. But the candidates themselves are, are very perky and very energetic about it all, so... Well, speaking it of politics, I want listeners to know that we are doing a project. You know about StoryCorps? NPR does this StoryCorps, these conver- great conversations. There's a project that they're doing called One Small Step, and KUOW is participating. So if you, listener, worry about the political divides in our country and you want to be part of the solution, take part in this because we're pairing strangers with different political views for a conversation not about politics just about your lives. So you can bring our community together a little bit, one conversation at a time. If you're interested, get info and sign up at KUOW.org slash story, as in StoryCorps, KUOW.org slash story. Okay, we have brought up the fact that um, at least we won't, we hope, have pandemic politics as part of the toxic brew Um, in this campaign. We'll see about that. But this week, the federal COVID public health emergency officially ended. And as KUOW's Olympia correspondent Jeannie Lindsay told us, Washington state employees no longer have to be vaccinated. Now Washington will provide a $1,000 cash incentive to employees who stay up to date with their COVID vaccinations. That incentive rolls out this summer. But overall, it seems to be winding down. Great news, right? Dr. Tao Sheng Quan Get of the State Health Department. It's important for us to remember that the pandemic is not over and that COVID-19 will be here for the foreseeable future. Rats. Monica, what else should we know? Well, you know, I think about this in sort of two ways. As a practical matter, the things that people might notice cho- 
changing are the, you know, those mass testing sites where maybe you drove through and had somebody stick a Q-tip into your brain. Um, those are closing. <laughs> That's about where it was, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If you are a resident on Medicaid, then you might need to renew your eligibility, which was automatically extended during the state of emergency. Hmm. Um, I think vaccines will stay free while supplies last, at least. Yeah, they have federal supplies, right? And right. They, those are going to will burn through those. Yeah. Uh, after that, it may become more like the way that you get your flu shot, whatever that might be. Okay. Um, but I, I think to me personally, the bigger picture change here is more in our attitude toward COVID. In the past few months, it just feels like it's changed so much. You know, I think about the two times that I've gone to the hospital in the past few years. One was when my son was born in 2021. And, you know, the first thing that they did when we walked in the door was COVID tests. We were isolated mm. to our room for the whole three days that we were there. It was very front of mind. You know, fast forward to two weeks ago, um, I had to take him to the ER. He's fine. He just got really severe um, conjunctivitis. But, you know, we waited in a crowded children's ER room. They had just taken down their tents that were out front. Um, he, I told them he hadn't had a COVID test yet. And um, I had to remind them three different times, which, which kind of shocked me because, you know, pink eye is supposedly one of the symptoms of the new variant. But I had to really flag them down to get a COVID test for him. So it was like huh. not even a priority anymore, even in a healthcare setting. And that was just really jarring to me that we had made this real 180 in such a short period of time. But didn't weren't the folks sitting there wearing masks? The the healthcare workers were, yeah. Yeah, so they they uh they still have Paxlovid is free for now, I think, until uh whatever the state bought runs out. All, all these, you know, that's this the slow wind down. The, sec the state secretary of health, uh, Dr. Umer Shah, said that it's this is this is not the emergency declaration ending is not an immediate impact. It's not as if you're going to wake up on May 12th and the ability to access vaccines or therapeutics or tests, et cetera, will all of a sudden not be there. Although you mentioned the uh, variant, I saw that the World Health Organization names variant XBB.1.16 a variant of interest, whatever that's going to be. Uh I was sort of expecting a parade uh, for the end of COVID. You know, this is an important time in this whole long, very difficult um, experience for our country. Um, but um, it it is kind of a day where we, you know, we're gonna we're gonna change our behavior. We're gonna change the way we think about it. Uh, about those employees, I really wanted to say, you know, I think Jay Angelou's been a good governor, still is a good governor, but I was really I guess disappointed that um, the way that they are responding to employees who want to get back their jobs, who who, who left because they they didn't agree with the vaccination policy. I mean, he's now using uh, carrots instead of sticks, but but losing your job is is quite a stick. Mm -hmm. And the way I disagree, I guess the spokesperson said that folks trying to come back to work as state employees that. You know, they can apply for jobs, but ap applications would be evaluated the same as any candidate. I mean, I just disagree with that. I think I think you got to give them preference. Uh, COVID was so hard on so many different people for so many different reasons. So in a way, if you look back, it was kind of a, a philosophical disagreement. I think those folks should have the edge in getting those jobs. Well, some people might want to give them the opposite of the edge because what they know about this person is that they were told that this is the rule in a pandemic and they wouldn't follow that. 
I mean, that's that's true, and, and that's that's the way it was handled. But mm-hmm. I think that aren't we evolving on this a little bit? Mm-hmm. Aren't we just getting wiser that not everything that was done and said was perfect or applied to all people, that there were different sets of circumstances and sort of philosophies? I just think it, the, the better approach really is to, yeah, give them a preference. You know, they've, they've had a hard time just like everyone else. Let me just check what I've been telling my kids about a rule that they don't like and whether they have to follow it or not. <laughs> What'd, I'm you just like, What'd you say? See here. Uh oh. No. Rules have to be followed. Uh, I may have said that. <laughs> I was afraid of that. Anything else? Well, I think that, you know, I, I, there are definitely people who will want to celebrate these changes, but I think, you know, I would not expect to see a parade um, in part because I, you know, I think that. This feeling that we're all ready to move on as a society is really hard for the folks who are still suffering from long COVID. I have a close friend who's in that camp, and they find it very frustrating to move through a world where they are still, um, you know, part of this mass disabling event, but it doesn't seem like anybody else is living in the same reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was just, when you were talking about a parade, it reminds me when <laughs> I first moved here in 2021, I got to go to the Space Needle for free because. Inslee was celebrating the end of COVID and, you know, they waved a big flag and had a big speech. And so it's kind of like they, you know, they already did that. And now mission accomplished. Exactly. And now it's like, well, we kind of know what happened after 2021. So why don't we just let COVID go quietly into the night? Um, But in in terms of the vaccine mandate and how Inslee is rescinding that, I, I think that really speaks to the cultural difference, because, you know, I remember when they first announced that, it was like this whole hardball thing that, you know, Washington was taking the lead and it was this whole cultural thing. And, you know, there were a lot of like debates about how the exemptions were going to work. You know, they really stuck to their guns. And so it it is like surprising to say, you know, see two years later, like, well, that's no longer the case. You can have your job back and we'll give you a thousand dollars, but we're not doing a lottery anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, in fairness to Jay Inslee and the local health officials, they did a fantastic job. Washington folks were healthier than folks in many other states. In other words, we lost fewer people and fewer people were sick. And I also, uh, Monica, have a friend. Uh, who got long COVID, and, and it's absolutely hideous the the how long it goes on and how much it limits you. So I agree with that. But I mean, we did well as a state the way we approached it. We had took a very scientific, big public health, public health, you know, big big picture kind of approach to it, and we did well. But this is now, and I'm mostly kidding about the parade. But it just yeah. did you. Only slightly. Did you um, did you expect it to end sort of so it, if it's ending so quietly? Not ending. That was that was how I feel about it. You know, not quiet, not ending. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think it's more it's just this transition into this phase where we have this new virus that we sort of treat like the flu, although it's it's almost twice as deadly as the flu. It's mm-hmm. kind of bizarre that we just live in a world where we have a twice as bad flu now, and that's part of our daily lives. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. That's Monica Nicholsberg, Amanda Zoe, Joni Balter. We're going to take a short break. And then a Seattle neighborhood lands on a list of most endangered historic places. That's when we return. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. 
You're listening to Week in Review, or maybe watching on YouTube and Facebook. I'm told my microphone was blocking my face, so I think I fixed that. Hi. Hi, camera. Uh, just search KUW Public Radio there. And uh, so we have Seattle Times, Amanda Zoe, KUW's Monica Nicholsberg, and political analyst Joni Balter with us. This week, the National Trust for Historic Preservation listed America's 11 most endangered historic places. It includes the Little Santo Domingo neighborhood in Miami, the Century and Consumers Buildings in Chicago, Holy Aid and Comfort Spiritual Church in New Orleans, and Seattle's Chinatown International District. KUOW spoke with We Fam with the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation, who says being on this list raises the stakes on efforts to protect Chinatown International District. Here in our Seattle and King County region to show like, hey, this is a big deal. If we lose the Chinatown International District, there's a lot of people around the country and around the world that really care. And it's not limited to just um, Seattle or our state. Joni, why is the CID endangered? Well, have you been to Chinatown International District lately? Yeah, uh, I have. And what'd you think? Well, uh, you mean boarded up stores? Yeah. And some trouble on the streets. Uh-huh. I saw some folks using the sidewalks as their bathroom and stuff like that last time I was down there. Well, that happens in lots of neighborhoods. So why is this, yeah, but, out of 11 neighborhoods in the United States, why is this on the annual list of endangered Well, because the Chinatown International District took a beating, just like many neighborhoods, our own downtown, mm-hmm. but it took a pretty big beating during the protests, during the pandemic, and with public, public safety issues, you know, front and center, they've had a lot of encampments nearby uh, with, with some real um, public safety issues. The place is really hurting. And I think what you're um, getting at here is sort of how much, how, how much should we worry about being 11th? Why, and by the way, why did they have 11? Aren't most lists like 10 or 20? But mm. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I just think it's, it's not a compliment to be on that list. And it, it means that we should be very careful about losing this neighborhood. And, you know, so much of Seattle has changed. I mean, I literally can get lost on a street I used to drive every single day because the buildings don't look anything the same as they used to be. I mean, I think that's a good thing, but go on. It's, it can be. Can but, be. But, but I really think this is a precious neighborhood with an amazing history and I just don't think we should be cavalier about it. I think okay. we should be very careful. Okay. Well, I don't think that the main reason that it ended up on the list was public safety. I mean, that might have contributed. But I think that the biggest concern that the folks behind this list see is the potential for this big um, light rail transit hub going in yeah. and potentially cleaving the neighborhood, which has already had that experience with I-5 and with various transit projects over the years. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I saw that story about the CID landing on the list, and, and I noticed that it's saying, you know, this list is an advocacy tool for the neighborhood. Um, and I think, it, to me, it really reflects how the future of the CID and, you know, all the growth in this city has really become a political issue. Um, you know, we also talk about, we were talking about the whole decision about where to put another sound transit station. But if you remember, I think it was a couple of months ago, there was that whole debate about the homeless shelter and, you know, whether it should go there. Um, and you're right, there are public safety issues in the CID. And there are a lot of seniors who live there, too, who don't speak English. 
And this, by the way, the the flap about whether to put a transit hub in the CID, it's it's not like the neighborhood is a monolith on this. They're very clashing opinions. Some people, Wajamaya comes to mind, but other plenty of others are saying we want. The, to connect to the city, this is a great opportunity, while others are saying this is construction and disruption and a, another huge project landing in this neighborhood. Yeah, so the, the neighborhood is is torn about uh, this discussion. You'll note that the Sound Transit Board identified um, two spots, north of CID and south of CID, as part of how they would approach this without um, – you know, landing another, uh, uh, excuse me, a hub in that neighborhood with, what, 10 to 15 years of construction. I, I'd like to read you um, just one quote here from Asunta Ng, who wrote in the online Northwest Asian Weekly. This is important. This is powerful. She wrote, the disruptive side of having a station built in the community are monstrous, including all the buses having to be rerouted from the CID. And she added she feared a new, another one, CID station. Um, by the time it's complete, because she's imagining delays, which many of our projects, also known as most of our projects, mm -hmm. uh, go through, that the whole neighborhood might be destroyed. So that is a very – you can see why it's a close call, why people have different takes on this, because then how do the folks from the, the CID get to a hub that's in, say, uh, Pioneer Square? They're, they can – hop on the, the existing train and, you know, that doesn't sound that hard, but even where that would land in Pioneer Square might not be right near where the uh, north and southbound uh, existing train goes right now. Yeah. I was a little confused when I first started reading about this story, so maybe there are some listeners who are as well, but because there are a number of transit stations in and around the CID, this one in particular that they're talking about, it would extend... Uh, rail and bus service to Ballard and West Seattle and kind of branch out in that way? Is yes, that why this is part needed? of that expansion. Yeah. Well, yes. I was confused by that as well. This specific one, as I understand it, uh, does connect to the main stem and, and, and all of that, but it's the one that's going to go to the east side as it goes from well, either Pioneer Square or the International District to Judkins Park and across um, to Mercer Island and the east side. Well, the east side one was already supposed to open, I think, this year. Um, so in, in the with the existing stations, but it got slowed down. Maybe next year, I twenty twenty five. You know, I let well, yeah, it keeps getting delayed. I lived in uh, and, that's, and kind of, that's kind of her point. And the other the other East Side stations are going to be ready to go. So King County Council Member Claudia Balducci is saying, just start running. Let's make it an East Side. The pro can't we can't get to Mercer Island? That the the problems are over the lake. Let's just start the East Side line. We'll we'll use it. Uh, anyway, I lived in uh, Los Angeles. Where the for a while, where the old downtown Chinatown is almost non-existent, but there's a huge Asian population, Chinese and otherwise, in the San Gabriel San Gabriel Valley, which we have in Bellevue. The you know you go to Highlands, Eastgate Crossroads, but I don't know if there's the same kind of community and resources there. It sort of makes me wonder. Well, what makes something a Chinatown or a, or a what have you? Um, you know, is it is it the, the concentration? Is it the history? Is it the architecture? Because it's like you go to Eastgate, there's like 15 different Asian, Chinese, Vietnamese, Asian market, uh, like restaurants and markets and IHOP.
<laughs> like, well, so, it, it can't be a Chinatown if it's an IHOP, right? But it's just the growing and changing is happening already. Yeah, it's definitely tough. Um, and, and I'm sure that is a great question for whoever is on the Historic Preservation Board. You know, what yeah. makes Chinatown Chinatown? For me, um, I really think of it as the architectural style, which I think started in San Francisco after like this really big fire. And they pretty much like intentionally stylized it in this way, which we know, you know, nowhere in Asia actually looks like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, you know, intentionally stylized in that way to be sort of, you know, like a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a tough issue because I don't totally understand the different options among sound transit, but I do know, you know, in an ideal world where you can just plop one down anywhere without disrupting any communities, the most efficient one would be in the CID. Right. And the, I think the north and south options, like there's like one wrinkle where like if you're coming down or if you're coming from the airport, like you have to go north, then south and then to the east. Um, Yeah. But, you know, it's a a tough issue. Yeah. The CID would would be right there where there's Amtrak, Sounder, light rail, streetcar, buses. And Dave up the Grove, the council member said the 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 construction issues are short term. The benefits of having the station are long term. And I'm not taking a position on it, but as you right. said, it is. It's there's. It's not obvious right. what to do. I want to go back to the East Side. Um, you know, uh, um, their own Chinatowns and international districts. If those evolve naturally. Fine, but what that doesn't get me to say we can just sort of see what whatever happens in the existing one. I think they yeah. the the new ones have to be plus. This is something worth preserving. I think that to your question of what makes a Chinatown, and I should say I'm not a member of the you know the international district community, so I'm not an authority on this, but. You know, from an outside perspective, I think what can be really frustrating, whether it's to an international district community or a historically black neighborhood, is the institutions of power for decades have sort of segregated people of color, um, marginalized groups into these communities via redlining, restrictive covenants, mm-hmm. um, just outright racism. And despite that, you know, they've built a sense of community and place and they have this history of like being pushed maybe to less desirable parts of the city and then creating this really incredible place that people want to visit that has this history. But then again and again, those who are in power tend to break up those neighborhoods or gentrify them once they become desirable. And so it's this constant kind of diaspora or displacement of people now to the east side or to the San Gabriel Valley and they have to continue to rebuild rather than just having a place that they can call home where they have those roots in that history. Yep. Agreed. Well put. Uh, Before we take a break, I want to get to Monica. uh, This is Monica Nicholsberg from KUOW. You reported this week on the rise of chat GPT in the workplace. Will you tell us about that? Sure. So Microsoft put out this report that found a a really big spike in the job listings on LinkedIn, not just in tech, but across LinkedIn in the U.S. that mention words like chat GPT or artificial intelligence. Um, You know, we should put a big caveat here that they put this report out at the same time that they were rolling out new AI tools in their own (laughs) Office 365 (laughs) products. And they're a big investor in OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. So they have a plenty of reason to present an optimistic view of this technology. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I think it does illustrate the way that employers are thinking about this. And it's something that they at least want employees to have familiarity with. Mm -hmm. But but in those ads, as we talked um, before the show, uh, what um, are they what do they want from their employees to to not hate chat GPT, (laughs) to be smart about it, to know how to, you know, depend on it or something, or just to handle all the email they can't manage? 
We don't have an answer to that. I mean, the report just said the mentions of those words. But you think about the words that go into job listings, I would imagine maybe preferred skills, proficiency with, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it really reflects how it's sort of this shiny new technology and a lot of employers are probably like oh you know let's put that in the job listing (laughs) like excel was shiny or like web dev you know like i you know you could see that this is like one of the many skills that employers want their future employees to have Right. And I think Microsoft's position in putting this out, you know, another grabby stat from that report was that we spent two full workdays a week just on emails, meetings and chats. So communication stuff that, you know, I mean, as a reporter, I feel like that's a really core part of my job. So to yeah. me, that's not really that big <laughs> yeah. of a deal. But yeah. if it's not, you know, if you're a software engineer or something, seeing that you'd be like, I knew it. I'm wasting so much time on this. Enter Microsoft with tools to automate those things. So I but, think that is, you know, that's part of this story, too, is at least the the view that they're presenting is that AI isn't necessarily going to come for your job, but it could be used to make your job more efficient. Right. But it might come for your meeting. And so we're going to bring all the employees back to work more often so they can send chat GPT into the meeting or do they have to go themselves? Well, I mean, the way that they describe the tool would be more like they the this you know, robot is listening into your meeting and maybe they're taking the minutes and summarizing action items and making it shorter or keeping people on track. Well, you're going to have some time to uh, check in with ChatGPT while you're sitting in a red light unable to turn right. We'll discuss that in a moment when we come right back with more Week in Review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke. We are talking with a panel of journalists, as we do. We've got Seattle Times' Amanda Zoe, contributing columnist Joni Balter, KUOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. And uh, it occurred to me, as the words were coming out of my mouth, that no, you can't really check in on ChatGPT while you're at a red light waiting to turn right. That's illegal, right? But who's going to stop you? They don't enforce this. (laughs) Actually, when that rule came out that you can't check your phone at, uh, you know, when you're driving or behind the wheel, I did a ride along with a cop um, to watch them busting people for doing it. And I was like, I really wanted to drill into like, what is allowed at a red light? And he finally said, if the phone is docked, you can use one finger to check it. So oh. I don't know if you can access ChatGPT that way, but yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe dictation. Uh, well, anyway, KU, I bring this up because KUOW's John O'Brien told us this week about how the city of Seattle is moving toward a default rule that you can no longer turn right on red. Seattle drivers haven't always been able to make rights on red. They were banned until 1959. Then in 1975, federal officials required states to allow them to save gas and speed up traffic. But with crash-related deaths going up, SDOT is shifting gears. They'll add no-turn-on-red signs at 41 downtown intersections by the end of next month. Director Greg Spotts says it's because priorities have changed. Leave behind sort of 1970s concepts of traffic engineering where the flow of cars is the number one most important thing. The safety of our grandparents and our kids is the number one most important thing. Rights on red are already not allowed at more than 100 signaled intersections. And Spots says the restrictions will be coming to more neighborhoods around the city in the coming months. So, Amanda, this is a relatively recent thing that you can turn right on red. But once you get a right, it's hard to have it taken away. Do you think this is going to inflame a war on cars mindset or will we just be obedient in Seattle? 
Yeah, I guess it depends what kind of driver you are um, and where you're used to driving. <laughs> I mean, I, for me, you know, as a someone who does like to walk around and bike around, like, it seems like a pretty promising way to prevent, you know, potential collisions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think SDOT has taken the position here that pedestrian safety is more important than driver convenience, and that seems like a no-brainer to me. I'm for this. I think there's way too many bike and pedestrian accidents right now. You know, things have changed. We have a new transportation director, Greg Spott, who you were talking about. He came in, what, last September or something like that and did, you know, bike arounds, uh, drive arounds, walk arounds and came up with, you know, fresh eyes on our situation here. I I think it's it's the right thing to do here because, look, everyone is scared of what can happen. The drivers, uh, the bikes, the pedestrians, the runners, everybody. And I think it's an improvement. So you think the drivers are going to say, thank you. For yeah. They were so <laughs> yes. nervous they about should. right turns. They won't say it, but they should say it. And the oh. reason they should say it is it keeps them out of trouble. I mean, you know, so I have this cousin. He's a big-time mountain biker, and he told me recently, told all, all the relatives, um, you know, if if somebody hits me with their car, I want you to immediately request the phone records of whoever hit me because I'll bet you 80 to 90 percent chance that person was on their phone. And if you think about some of the safety things that are put into some of the newer cars, I have an 11-year-old car, but I sort of admire uh, some of the safety features. Yeah, some of the cars might beep if somebody's coming up and, and you can't see them, and some of them don't. And there's just way too much bad behavior with cell phones to not do this is where I'm at. Well, I've never, certainly never been walking in a crosswalk looking at my cell phone. <laughs> I could tell you that. doesn't and mean I, it's true, but I can tell you that. I well, don't so believe it. Once the light turns green, I'm in a car, the light turns green. Now pedestrians can enter the crosswalk on my right. Whereas before I could have turned right while that crosswalk was empty. But I'm not going to be able to do that anymore, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I have to be honest, I think most people, uh, people who don't, you know, sit on Twitter and read the news all day and have a little blessed existence, <laughs> I, I think a lot of them, <laughs> I think a lot of them are not going to notice this change because a lot of these intersections are going to be in downtown uh, that they're making these changes. So I think it's already going to be like busy areas where you kind of already know like pedestrians are trying to walk around, get mm -hmm. stores. Um, and then, you know, I, I think we saw in one of our stories, like the city has like a thousand intersections. So it sounds like it's only like 40 or 100 that are going to have no right on red. Um, so I think it's just to me, this is like a small change that probably, you know, reflects a cultural change. But I wonder if because it's still a mix, like I turned right on red at Edgar Martinez off of I-5 and I got pulled over, but I only got a warning because... It's hard, to, I think, because it's hard to keep track of where it's legal and where it's not. If it became the norm, that's a ticket. But but there's going to be a, which which place, you know, you're in a hurry. You, I guess maybe we get used to checking for signs every time. I, I check for the sign every time. Well, that makes you a better human. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there'll be sort of a, a trial period or, you know, where they're not going to write tickets on it. But eventually, if people just pretend that it's not there... I think you'll see some tickets, you know, that that is as soon as we get enough police officers to actually do that. By the way, I did not run that that sign on purpose. That was just my mistake. It just kind of just kind of happened. <laughs> Chat GPT was driving. Yeah, Maybe. that's a good excuse. Uh by the way, Amanda, if I'm fed up with these car restrictions, I could always take the bus. Are there plenty of those? <laughs> well, I How's guess that that's, uh, uh, I guess that brings us to our next topic, which yes. is that King County Metro, I think, is cutting some of their lines for the fall. 
Um, you know, they've already sort of had staffing problems with bus, bus drivers and mechanics. And, and I think, you know, they're framing this as like, you know, we're already cutting lines on a day to day basis. And, you know, we're hoping to cutting lines. You mean getting rid of bus yes, lines? Yes. Yeah. Or, or, you know, getting rid of a bus on a line. Oh, OK. And they're trying to make their schedule a little bit more consistent, I think. And why are they um, just for consistency or is they don't have enough? Buses or drivers or money? What's driving the the reduction? I I think it's the labor shortage, right? The lack of drivers. Yeah, I think a lack of drivers and mechanics to be able to support the current level of service. This is KUOW labor and economy (laughs) reporter Monica Nicholsberg. Who, me? Yeah, everything's got a labor shortage in it, bus drivers included. Everything's a labor story these days. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this kind of confluence of pandemic-driven factors happening here and across industries where you've got a lot of folks retiring, you know, an aging workforce, uh, a lot of people who left their jobs during the pandemic and didn't come back or moved on to different things. Um, And then with this in particular, you also have changing commuting patterns where Mm. it's just, you know, the system was set up for a time when people were traveling, where lots and lots of people were traveling downtown and back at pretty fixed times of days every day of the week versus now when most corporate workers are on kind of a hybrid or fully remote schedule. And that system just doesn't really match the reality of today. Well, I have I have two thoughts about this. One is, what about folks who voted uh, time and again for increased bus service? What what is are we just saying? Well, that was great. You supported that because you you know you believe in the value of uh, public transit. But um, that was a different day. And then I guess, and this is going to sound redundant. <laughs> how about inviting some folks who left um, over vaccination policy back? to fix a few buses and drive a few buses and maybe get the service to where it needs to be. Now, of course, if they don't have the demand for these routes, you know, that that's a different story. But mm-hmm. but there are expectations built in here for, for some people. Yeah, if it's about a shortage of drivers and mechanics, why aren't they paying enough salary and benefits to attract more workers? Isn't that Econ 101? I think it's just that it's a number of factors at the same time that are driving this. It's not just one thing that could be solved with one solution. Okay. Well, in fairness, there's low unemployment rates right now, and there are you know shortages of workers, as you said, pretty much in in many many businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, I only like to discuss things with one simple solution, so it's going to be. A problem. <laughs> you might be on the wrong show, Bill. <laughs> Um, okay, well, let's get to uh, things that made us smile. We have a good, comfortable amount. Usually, uh, I'm cutting that section too short because we're out of time. So we have like nine minutes, and I've got a, I have a, a nominee because we were discussing Seattle's uh, Chinatown International District earlier. When I was a UW student in the 1980s, the Chinese restaurants. Uh, you know, on the Ave and generally in Seattle, I think, uh, in most places, would serve stuff like egg foo young and sweet and sour pork and General So's chicken. And I didn't know that you wouldn't find those dishes in China. I was from Nebraska. And and they sounded Chinese to me. And then a friend of mine filled me in, and I was embarrassed about how provincial I was. How Nebraska you can be. Yes. Yeah. And then one night... He and I were in the Chinatown International District. We were at Tai Tung. You know Tai Tung? Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Um, All I can say is almond chicken. Almond chicken. See, mm-hmm. that might be – I don't know about almond chicken. But he ordered the egg foo young. And, and, I, and I was surprised, right? And he said, 
Well, yeah, I mean, we used to eat this in suburban Portland where I grew up, and I don't care that it's not authentic. I just like it. So so forward to this week, apparently a bunch of British TikTok users have been showing their Chinese takeout orders. You're nodding your head, Monica. You know about this? I, you are the second person to tell me about this this week. Really? Yes. Okay. So uh, so they're, they, show, they take out their orders, and it's like golden fried chicken balls and fries – covered in like french fries covered in gloopy brown curry sauce hashtag british chinese food and a lot of americans have been mocking them saying like what is that and where are the vegetables are the british eating out of a dumpster and so chefs of chinese background in both the u.s and britain are defending British Chinese food. Uh, the chef Kate Eng in London calls it the glorious mess of beige that is British Chinese takeaway food. It deserves respect. American chef Anita Lowe said, cuisine evolves over time with migration and colonization. China is a vast country with many cuisines. It's hard to know it all, and it's rude to demean another person's dinner. And she said, I hate the word authentic. It has no meaning. Authentic to who? And all of this made me smile because I like the evolution from, from, you know, from, from challenge and marginalization to adaptation to expanded tastes to scolding over authenticity to a more expansive view and more people of more backgrounds getting to join the conversation. So social media for the win was how I reacted to that. Yeah, I mean, I think food is this really, really interesting place where we can have these conversations about identity and history and appropriation. And mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it's it touches every single person's life. Everybody's got to eat. Um, everybody has a, a food culture, flimsy as that might be growing up in America. Um, Nebraska, Nebraska, in food Nebraska, culture, the Nebraska yeah. food culture. Yeah. Um, My sister and brother used to detassel corn for their summer job. Oh, that's sweet. Sweet. (laughs) You were saying? Um, And I think that there are really valid conversations that are had here, especially if there's, you know, a a marginalized group who feels that they're, not that they're, you know, a monolith, like you said, but Mm. like if folks from marginalized groups feel like their food's being appropriated by white people and, you know, spun out as this new trendy thing, I think that's one thing. But I do think we also have to let food breathe and evolve and reflect the history and people of the place that it's in. And um, and it's just not something to like really gatekeep about what is real and what's not real because it's a constantly evolving thing across the world. Mm. Agreed. I kind of roll my eyes at the whole like, oh, it's authentic. It's not authentic. Because like the reality is like probably the people who made that Chinese food in Nebraska were Chinese and like right. doing right. what the economy demanded. You know, another yes. labor story. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, I think like I saw, I heard some great example of like you know what we imagine as Korean food in the U.S. is really from like post-war Korea, and like that's not really what they eat in Korea anymore. Mm. Um, just you know, time is always evolving, and you know, authenticity will always be a evolving conversation. Right. Yeah, I saw something similar about uh, there was like this ramen dish that went viral on the internet that was like instant ramen with a slice of American cheese exactly, melted into yeah. it, and everyone was like, "That was disgusting." And then it's like, well, the history of this actually dates back to a time when like. You know, this war-torn country only had, like, American rations, and let's be a little bit, like, measured in our – and just jumping in to say, like, that's gross, that's not real, because we don't know the history of food, and food carries so much history. Well, I I was thinking about this in terms of uh, just a phenomenon that took place in food, especially on the West Coast, so a little bit away from Nebraska, but um, fusion. 
What does that mean? That means you're blending. I think this means this isn't a technical <laughs> offering here. I think it means you're blending different uh, cuisines and sometimes putting the foods that belong to these different cons- cuisines together, or sometimes just having a menu that's that's broad enough to capture several different cuisines. You, you'd see sort of like international and Asian fusion dishes. Now, the new thing here is, of course, the Brits trying to put chips in everything. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> that sounds delicious. Um, I digress slightly here, but um, I was on a, a book tour with my husband, and we were in Cincinnati, and there was this food called uh, Cincinnati chili, which was basically kind of chili on top of noodles, and maybe there were some fries in there. I can't remember. That's a variation. Mm. And, um, you know, I was like, you can't make fun of this. These people like this. Because yeah. I made a, a couple jokes about about Cincinnati chili, and the people there looked at me like, yeah, what's your point? Not <laughs> right. funny. Right. And I'm like, oh, okay, people like their food. Yeah. People like their food, and that makes me smile. Now we're down to three minutes, so I, uh, who, who uh, found something else worthy of smiling about this week? The food that's growing in my garden is making me smile. It's been so freezing that nothing's been able to take off, and then in the past week it's like, whoa. Everything spring. shoots up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too busy gardening to think about whether you're going to run for governor. Yeah, you I and Jamie Herrera Butler. I, know, I, I have no a fact time check to that. I will, like, it didn't come up. We had to move on. But raspberry uh. bushes do not require a lot of maintenance. You can uh. put that in the ground and leave it and come back 10 years later and it will have taken over the entire space. That's exactly so, right about, about raspberry. You true. can be that's governor, <laughs> Jamie Have a governor's thought while gardening. Just saying. What else? Anything, anything to smile about before we back out here? Yeah, um, I was smiling about a story in the Seattle Times that um, I think it's pretty, maybe I'm a little cynical here, but I think it's kind of marketing, but, you know, I'll give them some well-earned airtime, which is that Pagliacci said that they're going to be uh, delivering pizzas with the drone company Zipline, though, you know, noted they say there's no exact timing for the deployment, which I read as maybe never. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I thought that was kind of funny to imagine a pizza coming from the sky, though. I don't think that would work super well in my neighborhood with like all the trees and the phone lines. And so I'll probably just be, you know, walking the half mile to buy my lonely (laughs) slice. Can I, can I quote uh, cousin Greg from the TV series (laughs) succession? Okay. If you put that pizza in a drone, bounce into the uh, power lines and the trees and if it still lands, you're still going to have the sogginess factor. Still soggy. I thought you were going to say uh, the people will be taking a whipping out a shotgun and trying <laughs> to get dinner. That's what I usually say. Isn't that what I usually say? We got a minute, minute and a half left. Anything to smile about, Joni? Or do we smile about everything? Uh, I, I'm smiling at the, at the news these days, and I'm smiling. Like I said, I think May is just a an incredible month and I love every minute of spring and the flowers and before it hits 90 when I will join all the other Seattleites who say when is this going to end? Indeed. Mm-hmm. Joni Balter contributing columnist political analyst Seattle Times reporter Amanda Zoe, KUOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. Thanks for making us smart. Let's see we did a whole week in just an hour and I feel like we know a lot now. Thank well, thanks you. Thanks for having us Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. I love it. Weekend Reviews produced by Kevin Kinestet with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. And Bernard, Bernard Wallet runs the board, makes it sound great. And one more time, if you want in on that one small step, this is a StoryCorps project where we pair strangers with different political views for a conversation not about politics, just talking about your lives. So if you want to be in on that, 
Help our community come together one conversation at a time. Just go to KUOW.org slash story, as in StoryCorps, KUOW.org slash story, and find out about it and sign up. Thank you for joining me on Week in Review, and I look forward to doing this another week from now.